0: Washington, D.C., this is on the ground. Poland's president calls Ukraine's head of state a drowning man that is dangerous. And that's just one of the highlights of this week in As the Empire Turns.
1: The unipolar moment has disintegrated. The United States is in a multipolar
0: environment. And six members of the Australian parliament visit D.C. to say enough is enough that the U.S. must end the unprecedented attempt to extradite and prosecute the Australian citizen, Julian Assange, solely for doing the work of a journalist.
2: Sometimes it is very hard to be a friend of the United States. When the United States is prosecuting an Australian citizen for basically being a journalist, it's very hard to be a friend of the United States. We all came here in the spirit of friendship. As Barnaby has said, we didn't come here to pick a fight. We came here to solve a problem, and that can only be solved by Juliana coming hard.
0: All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground. OnTheGroundShow.org. Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Avram. First some headlines. With each passing day, it looks increasingly unlikely that Congress will reach a deal to keep funding the federal government beyond the current fiscal year, which ends September 30th. So it looks increasingly likely that the federal government will shut down on October 1st. About 4 million workers would be affected, half of which are active duty military and reservists, and 85% of which live outside the D.C. area. Even though almost all of these workers will not be paid, some performing tasks considered essential will be asked to report to work without pay. According to the American Federation of Government Employees, roughly $6 billion a week in just civilian workers' wages could get sucked out of the economy in a shutdown, but the halt in funding will not stop Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security payments and will not close the U.S. Postal Service. United Auto Workers President Sean Fain says that a general strike of all of the union's 150,000 workers against the big three automakers is still on the table if General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis refuse to make a sufficient contract offer. More than 12,000 UAW auto workers at three plants in Michigan, Ohio, and Missouri went on strike on September 15th, seeking a 36% raise over four years. Reuters reported that Stellantis has increased its wage hike offer to nearly 21 percent over the life of the contract, while Ford has proposed 20 percent and General Motors has proposed 18 percent. At the same time, Ford and GM said that they plan to temporarily lay off thousands of non-striking employees, citing the impact of walkouts in Michigan and Ohio. Fain says that layoffs are completely unnecessary and are an attempt to, quote, put the squeeze on our members to settle for less. End quote. He added that, quote, with their record profits, they don't have to lay off a single employee. In fact, they could double every auto workers pay, not raise car prices and still rake in billions of dollars. End quote, he said. Economic analysts speculate that the UAW decision to start with a limited strike may weaken the union's hand and that the union may be counting on political pressure from Democrats on the automakers. In response to Ford officials saying that the union's demands were not, quote unquote, sustainable, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York posted on social media, quote, There is no way you can continue wasting hundreds of millions of dollars on stock buybacks to manipulate stock prices, jack up CEO pay to ludicrous levels, all the while starving the workers who actually make the product you sell. That is what is unsustainable. Pay your workers, end quote, she said. Now, while earning record profits, General Motors and Ford are paying an average combined tax rate of just 1% according to a new report. Analysis by Americans for Tax Fairness notes that over the past five years, GM and Ford made a total of $34 billion and $8 billion respectively, but paid an effective tax rate of only 1.3% for GM and minus 0.2% for Ford, the report reads, quote, while some of those tax savings have found their way into rapidly rising compensation packages for the firm's top executives and board members, wages of rank and file workers have lagged. Quote, average executive pay at GM and Ford grew by 32 percent over the past five years, while median auto worker pay grew by just 8.8 percent over the same period, widening the executive to worker pay gap to 183 to 1 the report continues quote over that same period gm and ford paid out a combined total of 14 billion dollars in dividends 34 times more than they paid in taxes spent 3.6 billion dollars on stock buybacks nine times more than what they paid in taxes, and lavished $614 million on top of company executives. And that was 50% more than what they paid in taxes. One final note on strike actions, tens of thousands of flight attendants and Kaiser Permanente health care workers may be joining the ranks of those striking. following up our recent coverage of the U.S. government and AFL-CIO involvement in the overthrow of Chile's government 50 years ago, Senator Bernie Sanders and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other lawmakers have introduced a resolution that formally commemorates the 50th anniversary of the deadly 1973 military coup in Chile and apologizes for the role the United States played in the toppling of the government and the mass murders, torture and decades of fascist terror that followed. Sanders said in a statement, quote, to build the lasting partnerships we need in this hemisphere, we will need to establish a basis of trust and respect. Part of that process includes full accountability for the coup and its aftermath. End quote, he said. The resolution adds that, quote, full accountability requires a full accounting in the form of disclosure and declassification of remaining United States records relating to events leading up to, during and after the military coup of 50 years ago. Finally, in Culture and Media, six members of the Australian Parliament met with Department of Justice officials on Thursday. Thomas O'Rourke has more.
3: A contingent of six Australian members of Parliament, representing some 60 others across their political spectrum, spent two days this week in Washington lobbying various offices of the U.S. government, including Congress and the Departments of State and Justice, calling to end the ongoing pursuit of WikiLeaks founder, Julian Assange. Several also attended the U.N. General Assembly opening with the same purpose. The delegation took out a full-page ad in the Washington Post September 19th saying that the prosecution of Julian Assange served no purpose, was unjust, and that U.S. extradition proceedings should be immediately stopped. Assange, an Australian citizen, faces 17 charges of espionage and one charge of computer misuse after WikiLeaks published a raft of classified documents more than a decade ago. On the Ground, this is Thomas O'Rourke.
0: We'll have voices from that press conference after headlines. And finally, the American Library Association reveals that a record number of library books were challenged during the first eight months of 2023. The Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom documented 695 attempts to remove nearly 2,000 library titles as of August 31st. The report described how organized far-right groups such as Moms for Liberty are urging parents to sign petitions to ban books that the parents have not even read, and that challenges increasingly target books in public libraries as well as school libraries. The three most challenged books of 2022 were Maya Kababi's Gender Queer, George Johnson's All Boys Aren't Blue, and Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us.
4: Australia and the US are the closest of friends and the closest of allies and of course that kind of relationship should be built on, uh, on mutual trust and mutual respect um, and it was a good start that we had a meeting today with the Department of Justice as a cross-party Australian uh, delegation. Uh, I'm not going to say much except to say that we feel like we had a fair hearing uh, and we had productive discussions and I might see if any of my colleagues want to add anything to that.
5: Thank you and we're here in Washington and can I start by making this observation. The Statue of Liberty is a beacon of US values, of justice, freedom and friendship. We are here from Australia as friends of the US and we are here because we also believe strongly in those values, values which right now have shown that Julian Assange, an Australian citizen, has been effectively deprived of his liberty for the last 11 years. And we're here to speak to the US US government and to make it very clear that the people of Australia believe that Julian Assange has been punished enough, that his detention should come to an end, that the charges against him should be dropped. And our discussions with the Department of Justice right now and with others in in Washington have enabled us to put that view very clearly and very strongly. We've done that and we've certainly, we'll be doing more of that tomorrow, but we've, we've certainly been given the opportunity and a very fair hearing with all the
6: people we've spoken to today. Can you tell us anything um, about- i just jump in. Um, First of all, uh, I'd like to thank the Department of Justice for the time that they've given us. And as Senator Wish Wilson said, I believe we had a fair hearing. Um, Obviously, justice comes from from a fair oversight, a fair oversight of the facts, and Australians believe in a fair go. And we want to make sure that people clearly understand we did not come here to pick a fight. We came here to present a case and to lobby for an outcome. And this is part of the process of Um, making sure that people are aware of all the facts and those wider facts as we also have grown to know over a number of years so um, uh, the delegation has come from every corner of the political spectrum but we've arrived in Washington at the one spot and that is after 11 years enough is enough
2: (laughs) This has been a unique delegation from the Australian Parliament. Literally all sides of politics have come together and united on this one key message, which is that an Australian citizen, Julian Assange, should come home. Uh, the only crime that we see that the Julian Assange has been charged with is the crime of being a journalist, the crime of telling the truth. And the fact that it's an Australian citizen that has been targeted by one of our closest friends and allies is a very real concern to us as politicians and to a growing part of the Australian public. More than 85% of the Australian public, close to 90% of the Australian public, say that Julian Assange should come home. This is an ongoing irritant in the bilateral relationship. We've had productive meetings with the administration and with members of Congress, and we've made it very clear in each of those meetings that there is a growing political consensus in Australia that Julian Assange should be home for Christmas with his two children and his wife. This has gone on more than long enough. Uh, and we have made that clear, the growing unity in the Australian people, the growing unity in the Australian Parliament, that Julian Assange should come home.
7: Yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah, sorry, Senator Alex Antic, Senator for South Australia. Look, I uh, am here today as one of uh, what you would describe as being the most broad political uh, alliance in uh, probably in my time watching politics in Australia and being involved in politics in Australia. We've got people here representing the right, the left and everything in between. And that really does showcase what we're seeing now, which is a growing consensus in Australia. Uh, Nine out of ten Australians, it is reported now, believe that Julian should come home. There are many, many, many of us who agree with that. And we're here in uh, in Washington DC to get that message conveyed to the American government. Uh, I want to thank you all for your interest in the matter, and I want to thank my colleagues for the incredible way in which people have come together across the political spectrum. We we may not agree on almost anything else in politics other than this one issue, and uh, it is an enormous effort. We've seen 67 members of the Australian. Parliament uh, share that message in a joint letter, uh, which we've delivered across the spectrum as well today. I don't think that's ever happened before. I think we're seeing an incredible groundswell, and We want to see Julian home as soon as possible. Any questions? Can I I
4: just add one one, one comment? One one, one thing to to you as Eiline, or one one thing that we have, a a very strong clear message that we have been delivering to decision makers, uh, politicians, government, here in the US is that the extradition of Julian Assange uh, as, a, as a journalist and as a foreign journalist who is conducting activities on foreign soils is a precedent. Uh, in fact, the US hasn't tried to extradite a journalist before, but nor have they used uh, the current legal uh, system that's...
6: Sorry, did you say something wrong? No, it's what you're going to need. Oh, sorry, okay. Uh,
4: n- nor have we seen them use the Espionage Act before to pursue any journalist. Uh, This is a very troubling precedent, uh, not just for us in Australia, but for everyone in the world. And of course, we're very excited about being here. Uh, You know, clearly the capital of democracy around the world, the beacon to democracy. And we've just been highlighting uh, that this is a very dangerous precedent, a very slippery slope for any democracy to go down. Thank you.
5: Could you tell us anything about who you met with in the Department of Justice, anything further
4: about anything they might have told you?
5: Look, it, throughout the day we've had several meetings, and we're not going to go into the detail of those meetings, but I can say that they've all been useful meetings. They've, uh, they've enabled us, as representatives of both the Parliament and the Australian people, to make and put our case very clearly about the fact that the Julian Assange um, pursuit and detention and charges should be dropped. And should come to an end.
2: Are you, more or less Are you feeling more or less optimistic now? Well,
5: I feel more optimistic every day because the fact of the matter is that ever since this commenced over a decade ago, I've seen a shift in public opinion, not only in the Parliament, but throughout the Australian community and across the world. And as a result of that shift in opinion throughout the world, I'm feeling much more
2: confident that we
5: can bring this matter to one end.
6: If the U.S. does not change its, its position on
2: Assad, what does that say about Australia's level of influence in Washington, Given that we're meant to be one of its greatest
5: allies? Um, that's a hypothetical question, and my view is that we will deal with the process as the way we have been. I'm sure that at diplomatic levels these issues are also being discussed, and, uh, and I'm hoping that when uh, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese comes here next month, perhaps it'll be another opportunity to raise the matter. I might just
1: say
4: one thing. Given we're a delegation we and have, we have different views, we're, we might yeah. have a, we might put yeah. a different opportunity.
2: Uh, if this matter is not resolved and Julian is not brought home, it will be damaging to the bilateral relationship. When you have such an overwhelming part of the Australian public demanding Julian come home, and when that can't be delivered from a relationship that is as close as that between Australia and the United States, Well, that is embarrassing for the Australian Prime Minister and the Australian government, and it's damaging to the relationship. Sometimes it is very hard to be a friend of the United States. When the United States is prosecuting an Australian citizen for basically being a journalist, it's very hard to be a friend of the United States. We all came here in the spirit of friendship. As Barnaby has said, we didn't come here to pick a fight. We came here to solve a problem, and that can only be solved
6: by Julian Assange coming home. Do you agree with that? Uh, Look, I am continuing on that. We wanted success for us. Let's take the word Julian Assange out. Let's just say an Australian citizen. An Australian citizen who was um, not in the United States when an offence was created in the United States, was in Australia, has never been convicted of a crime in Australia, uh, to go the, the issue of the reach of ex ex-territoriality is in... Think of it as your son, your daughter, your brother. If at one stage they're in Australia and they never committed a crime in the United States, then they end up possibly going to the United States for 175 years in jail, you'd want a delegation to turn up. And um, we have arrived. Uh, now, I would... I know little about lots and lots about politics, and I do not want to put any form of duress or precedent on people. I want them to think about it in a compassionate, logical form, for which success of this delegation is not a score a point, it's for this Australian citizen to come home. And isn't that all... Isn't that what everybody wants to do? Don't you just want to go home after a while? Isn't enough enough and it's just time to get back to where you belong.
4: I think all we can say at the moment is that you know, we, we feel like we've had we feel like we've had a fair hearing, uh, and that's a good start. That we've seen that level of respect that we've actually been able to meet senior officials, uh, senators, uh, Congress, and we've had a hearing. And uh, I can say that I I've been on this uh, on this issue now for many many years, um, and I'm feeling optimistic from our meeting So I do feel uh, there are cogs are turning and the wheels are moving. Uh, And I feel optimistic that uh, we'll get a resolution and Julian will be home with his family.
0: Thank you.
3: Thank you. you. With all due respect, gentlemen, was an effort such as this made towards the British government that's been holding him for four years, torturing him in a high security uh, prison for terrorists, a a journalist, a a, a publisher, where was the effort towards... uh, the government that you're, yeah. you're still a part of as, it's, a, as a it's, a, commonwealth
4: nation. it's a really good question uh, and it's been something that we've discussed as a delegation including in our meetings uh, a number of Australian parliamentarians have gone to the UK in fact I'll hand over to David because he's tried to go into Belmarsh to meet with yeah. Julian and do exactly this yeah.
2: Look, it's clearly the view of the friends of Julian Assange across parliament that Julian should be brought home one of the reasons we're here is we're in the shadow of extradition proceedings in the United Kingdom. And of course, if the appeal is not successful, um, there will ultimately be a political decision for the UK uh, for the UK government about whether the extradition proceeds. And the arguments we make here in Washington are the same arguments we'd make in London, that this should not happen and that Julian Assange should
4: be brought home. And I think it's, I think it's fair to say an easy resolution for this where nobody loses face is for the UK government to simply say no, because ultimately the final decision will be by the Attorney General or potentially the Prime Minister, and it will be a political decision. And remember, the judges already ruled that Julian Assange previously was unfit to be sent to the US based on uh, the fact that he's had mental health issues and was suicidal. Uh, the UK government could make this easy for everyone. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Thank Thank you.
0: You just heard Australian members of Parliament, including Barnaby Joyce, Tony Zappia, Alex Antic, Peter Wish Wilson, and David Shoebridge speaking outside the U.S. Department of Justice on Thursday, September 21st, 2023. They were seeking the release of imprisoned WikiLeaks founder and publisher Julian Assange. They called for an end of the U.S. effort to extradite Assange, who is an Australian citizen, from the U.K. to try him on U.S. charges of espionage for releasing information about U.S. war crimes in Iraq. Special thank you to Thomas LaRue for his coverage and additional thanks to Ford Fisher at news to share for additional audio. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. On the ground, On the Ground, OnTheGroundShow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Avera. And for more international and national news, I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Gerald Horn, the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston and the author of many books. Welcome back to the show, Gerald.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Now, there are two meetings I know that we need to talk about right here, happening in the United States, this meeting of the UN General Assembly. And I guess the biggest fireworks or shock for me came from the statements or the speech by the president of Poland uh, calling uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, president of Ukraine, a drowning man who is dangerous. And Poland has been one of Ukraine's most ardent, Allies in this proxy war, this U.S. proxy war against Russia in Ukraine?
1: Well, it's no secret that ultra rightists in Warsaw are lusting after Ukrainian territory. Uh, perhaps these forces see that as Ukraine is defeated on the battlefield by Russia, that will soften up Ukraine for more territorial sessions to countries like Poland. Also, uh, the leadership in Poland, the right-wing leadership, is due for elections. And Lech Walensa I'm sure you remember him, the so-called Nobel laureate who started the trade union movement Solidarity uh, some decades ago that led to the collapse of the socialist project in Poland and ultimately throughout the vicinity, uh, he has suggested that if President Duda and his comrades are not elected, they might wind up in jail. In other words, he's sort of an Eastern European version of Mr. Trump. And so obviously Duda sees Mr. Zelensky as a losing ticket. And so that has led to this insulting comment that Ukraine is akin to not only a drowning man, but that makes it all the more dangerous. That also sheds light on Mr. Zelensky's visit to Washington, begging bowl in tow. Uh, he should not expect the kind of warm welcome that he received some months ago when he spoke to a joint session of Congress with then Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Vice President Harris applauding behind him. Uh, instead, uh, he should expect continued pressure from the U.S. authorities to negotiate, because if you look at not only Mr. Biden's speech at the General Assembly, but perhaps more importantly, the speech of Secretary of State Anthony Blinken at Johns Hopkins University, uh, speaking to elite policymakers and training war criminals on training wheels is another way to look at them, where he suggested that something we've been arguing about for weeks and if not months is a reality that is to say the unipolar moment has disintegrated the united states is in a multipolar environment but he draws a wrong-headed conclusion which is that the united states now should embark on a kind of two-front cold war against both russia and china The problem there is, it's unclear to me, and I would hope it's unclear to Mr. Blinken, how Washington could prevail, given that that will require support from the European Union. And obviously, France is not on board with that. Recall that it was some months ago that President Macron traveled to Beijing with a plane load of businessmen trying to broker deals with China. Recall that Chancellor Schultz, Of Germany did the same thing around the same time. And so it's unclear to me how this two-front new Cold War will eventuate uh, given the current correlation of forces. And also troubling to Washington is how President Xi Jinping continues to thumb his nose at U.S. imperialism. On the one hand, you have a steady stream of high-level U.S. officials flooding into Beijing, Secretary of State, Lincoln, Secretary of the Treasury, Yellen, Secretary of Commerce, Romano climate czar Kerry. No reciprocity. I was even surprised when Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi uh, chose to meet with the U.S. National Security Advisor, Jake the Snake Sullivan, in Malta, uh, because it, it seems as if there had been some sort of high level boycott of conferring with uh, U.S. officials. On non-Chinese soil. But in retrospect, that meeting in Malta was a prelude to what can only be characterized as a love fest that took place a day or two later this week in Moscow, featuring Wang Yi, the Chinese Foreign Minister, and Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov. Now, they're obviously preparing for what will be a triumphant visit of President Putin to China within a few weeks And likewise, uh, one of the lingering questions today is whether Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, will show up in San Francisco within a few weeks for the annual meeting of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation gathering. Uh, I'm not so sure if he will. And that, too, uh, points to this uh, change in correlation of forces. Now, uh, Mr. Biden, in his General Assembly speech, and even before uh, through a few crumbs to the global south. Uh, he said that he would accede to Brazil and India joining the top table, the United Nations Security Council. But since he also says that Germany and Japan, these close U.S. allies, should follow along uh, with those uh, two new members, uh, I don't think that that particular plan is going to gain altitude. And in any case, As you probably know, uh, relations between India and the United States have been complicated in recent days by this revelation from Ottawa by Prime Minister Trudeau that Indian intelligence agents assassinated a Canadian citizen, a Sikh origin citizen, speaking of the minority group uh, in India, and that has led to tit-for-tat expulsions. Of Canadian diplomats from India, Uh, I take it that Washington will side with his close ally in Ottawa, but in any event, it makes it much more complicated for U.S. policy towards India. And as well, you might have seen that on the sidelines of the General Assembly meeting that Mr. Biden broke what was thought to be his boycott of Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel. Uh, when those two men get together, you can expect deviltry to follow. And accompanying that meeting is the recent news that President al-Assad of Syria is headed to China. He's probably there uh, as we speak. And uh, we expect that Chinese mediators who helped to bring together Iran and Saudi Arabia Uh, To the point where now both are candidate members of the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, uh, that we can expect Chinese mediators to work their magic and seek to bring together Syria and its erstwhile friend, speaking of Turkey, uh, which could leave U.S. imperialism out of the coal since they're uninvited guests on Syrian soil. That is to say, they're operating blatantly there without an invitation from the Damascus-based regime. And so that is the sum and substance of a very uh, complicated week for U.S. imperialism around the U.N. General Assembly. And of course, uh, we also know that as a prelude to the UNGA was a meeting in Havana, Cuba of the G77 the group of 77 uh, led by Cuba. A- yeah, I was going to
0: ask you about that because not only did G not only does G seem to have this I don't know you call it a boycott of meeting with US f- officials but he did not attend the G20, right? He did not attend this general assembly. I guess P- President Putin of Russia routinely doesn't come, but you have him. It's almost as if he's, he's making the point that my recent meet meeting with the BRICS is what is important to me. And this meeting that you're going to talk about now of the G77 plus China, you know, which will describe, this is what is important to me. This is where the world is heading.
1: This is where the world is setting uh, indeed. And, pay close and careful attention to the remarks in Cuba of President Lula of Brazil, who in a sense uh, replicated and anticipated his remarks at the General Assembly by calling for a swift termination of the blockade against socialist Cuba for removing Cuba from the so-called terrorism list devised by the United States of America. And with regard to boycotts Of the General Assembly, we should also mention the President of France, Macron, who concocted excuses for not attending. I suspect that he did not want his arm twisted with regard to entering this new Cold War with China. Recall that it was a few months ago at the all-important Munich Security Conference in Germany that President Macron gave a remarkable speech which can only be described in Washington parlance as a speech of pre-crimonations. is to say, he told his allies that, yes, uh, France has been going along with this boondoggle, this escapade in Ukraine, but he said that France had warned that this idea of it leading to regime change in Moscow was a fantasy at best. And of course, it turns out that Mr. Macron had a point And certainly the fact that Mr. Macron made an ill-advised attempt to join the BRICS suggests that he knows what time it is and the time for continued North Atlantic hegemony is rapidly ebbing away. And speaking of ebbing away, uh, we should also mention some of the pressing domestic problems of Mr. Biden. The fact that an impeachment inquiry has been opened, the fact that polls suggest a tightening of the race with the presumptive Republican nominee, Mr. Trump, the fact that influential journalists like David Ignatius of The Washington Post, a stenographer for the CIA and the State Department, if there was one, uh, called for Mr. Biden to drop out of the race, uh, which was a staggering and pulverizing blow. Uh, To his reelection effort. So once again, uh, Mr. Biden had a very bad, a horrible and awful week, both globally and domestically.
0: That is definitely a, a a good assessment. You wouldn't know that based on the the kind of cheerleading reporting in papers I see, like the Washington Post, where they say, "Oh, Biden has the UN all to himself. <laughs> He's able to spread his, uh, you know, spread out and really proselytize these these uh, gatherers in his uh, vision and I guess Bidenomics." But anyway, so that that was. That was a different way of looking at it. But I would really like for us to give an update on the Sahel. Uh, It's kind of dropped out of the headlines with all these meetings, but I do know that tensions remain there in Niger. And I think that I heard you reporting on the Congo. Just real quick. I know we don't have much time.
1: Well, with regard to the Sahel, the news there is in the last few days, the three key countries, speaking of Burkina Faso, Mali and Niger, have entered into an informal alliance, a kind of non-aggression pact, where if the economic community of West African states, spearheaded by Nigeria, attacks Niger, the other two countries will intervene on the side of Niger, uh, which could lead to a regional conflict of monumental uh, proportions. Now, with regard to the Republic of the Congo, as opposed to the Democratic Republic of the Congo, that is to say the smaller Congo once colonized by France, Congo Brazzaville, as it is sometimes known, uh, there was a report earlier this week that its leader, who was attending the General Assembly meeting in New York, was in the process of being overthrown. Now, one does not need a crystal ball to suspect that there is continuing plotting not only against the longtime regime in Congo Brazzaville, but also the regime in neighboring Cameroon, uh, led for decades now by 90-year-old Paul Biya, who spends most of his time in Switzerland. In fact, the Financial Times of London uh, had a remarkable story just a few days ago uh, showing Cameroonians uh, protesting against Mr. Biya at his luxury palatial estate, in Geneva, Switzerland. And speaking of leaders who may not be long for ruling, uh, the king of Morocco, 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 of course, suffering through this earthquake, turning down aid from various countries for unknown reasons. That king, that monarch, spends most of his time in Paris. So I think that rapidly we see that with regard to French neocolonialism in Africa, it's fair to say that the jig is up.
0: OK, well, we'll keep watching that jig unwind in the coming weeks and uh, keep our listeners updated. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show, and we are in need of your support. If you rely on the show, if you listen to the show, you come to look forward to what we are able to offer every week, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show, and you can also give on our website through PayPal or other means if you want to send a check all that information is there but please please support us i want to thank our supporters on patreon so much and for those who are already supporting if you can tell a friend who you know would love to sign up we need the support patreon.com forward slash on the ground show or go to on the ground show.org thank you we'll end our show today hearing a portion of the speech given by the President of Colombia, Gustavo Petro, September 19, 2023, at the United Nations, the opening day of the United Nations General Assembly. He spoke third after the President of Brazil, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, and after the President of the United States, Joseph R. Biden. Here is Gustavo Petro president of Colombia
5: Can I ask that the assembly come to order to receive the statement of his excellency Gustavo Petro Uregu president of the Republic of Colombia thank you
8: Thank you, Antonio, Dennis, my wife, Veronica and my youngest daughter, Veronica, here. I, a week ago, was in Santiago de Chile and I've made my journey to here from there to commemorate the 50th anniversary of a homicidal and bloody coup against President Salvador Allende. I then went through my own country and a popular neighborhood of Medellin where the mafia used to attract young people to offer them the possibility of learning computer programming. I then arrived in Havana an unjustly blockaded country where a president of my country suggested and achieved that it be included in the list of terrorist sponsoring countries simply because it helped to make peace in Colombia and now I am here ladies and gentlemen to make my speech to you over this year since the last speech that I gave in the United Nations we have only seen a deepening of what the wealthy meeting in Davos call a poly crisis The war is continuing, hunger continues, the recession is increasing and the climate crisis has shown its teeth as never before, claiming thousands of lives and heating our lands and our seas like never before. This has been a year where humanity has been losing and has unfailingly hastened the era of extinction. All of these crises are, in fact, just one crisis, the crisis of life. It seems that world leaders have become the enemies of life. The crisis of life is being expressed in one devastating indicator. This began at the furthest corners of the earth, far away, from the remotest regions, a silent, march of people from different cultures who are intermingling on their way, like an infinitely nuanced painting. The colours are mixing together in an uncontainable march. A multitude of all the colours is moving along the tracks, through the seas, through the jungles. It is making up a kind of work of art on the canvas of the earth a flow of tones, sounds, different clothes and cultures in an amalgam which does not forget its beginnings. In an amalgam, in a great march from the south to the north, this is the exodus of humanity which has begun. Today, there are tens of millions. Tomorrow, according to experts, by 2017, the figure will have reached three billion fleeing from their beloved homes, because these homes will be uninhabitable. In my homeland, the country of beauty, Colombia, the country of an explosion of life, by 2017, only deserts will remain. The people will go to the north, no longer attracted by the mirage of wealth, but rather by something simpler, something more vital, water. Since the beginnings, the millenary beginnings of humanity, people have gone to where water is, to the north. Billions of people will defy armies and will change the earth to do this. This exodus of the peoples to the north is an exact reflection of the dimension of the failure of governments. This last year has been a time of defeat governments, a defeat for humanity. The exodus across the borders has increased. They have set the dogs and the hounds on the immigrants. They have put people on horses to pursue them with whips in their hands, with stocks and chains. They have built prisons. So much the hatred has grown of the foreign, of the strange. These, parcels, these prisons have even been built at sea so that these women and men cannot tread the earth of the white people who still believe themselves to be the superior race and are nostalgic for this. And through their choices and elections they revive the leader who said so and who killed millions as a result. The exodus has increased over this year, showing how much the crisis of life is advancing. But the minutes are ticking on in defining life or death on our planet. And rather than halting this march of time and talking about how to defend life for the future thanks to greater knowledge and expanding life to the universe, we are deciding instead to waste our time killing one another. We are not thinking about how to expand life to the stars but rather how to end life on our own planet. We have devoted ourselves to war. We have been called to war. Latin America has been called upon to produce war machines, men to go to the killing fields. They're forgetting that our countries have been invaded several times by the very same people who are now talking about combating invasions. They're forgetting that, for oil, Iraq was invaded, Syria and Libya. They're forgetting that the same reasons they used to defend Zelensky are those very reasons which should be deployed to defend Palestine. They forget that to meet the sustainable development goals, all wars must be brought to an end. But they are helping to wage one war in particular, because world powers see this suiting themselves in their gamesmanship, in their games of hunger, and they're forgetting to bring an end to the other war because for these powers, this this did not suit them. What is the difference between Ukraine and Palestine, I ask? Is it not time to bring an end to both wars and other wars too, and make the most of the short time we have to build paths to save life on the planet? As president of Colombia, this country of beauty, of a group of humanity, millions of workers, women and men from popular neighborhoods, indigenous people, Afro-descendants, people from the fields, workers, young people of all colors. I'm the president. These people decided to elect in the majority and I'm here to speak before you. And I propose bringing an end to this war so that we have time to save ourselves. I propose that the United Nations should hold, as soon as possible, two peace conferences. One on Ukraine, the other on Palestine. Not because there are no other wars in the world, as there are in my country, but because this would guide the way to making peace in all regions of the planet. Because both of these alone can bring an end to the hypocrisy as a political practice. Because we could be sincere, a virtue without which we cannot be warriors for life itself.
0: And President Gustavo Petro of Colombia will have the last word on today's show. This is On the Ground Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook, X, or Patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. Or I also link to all the shows on my Instagram page. Esther underscore Ivarum, that's I-V like Victor, E-R-E-M like Mary. You can also subscribe to our podcast, On the Ground with Esther Ivarum, on all of your podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Our podcast, our social media pages and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. The music we played this hour included The World is a Masquerade by Earth, Wind and Fire, September by Earth, Wind and Fire, and What Rough Beast by the Burnt Sugar Orchestra. And our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace.